Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hey everyone, we're back again this month for what is episode 36 of Tech Chat. Today, I'm recording Tech Chat whilst my colleagues have deserted me and are halfway around the world at reInvent, but I'm not alone. And before I introduce our guest, keep your ears tuned to Tech Chat as we'll help you digest the keynote announcement, the more than 2,000 breakouts, and bring you the relevant topics at the depth you've come to love and expect. Expect this out in the coming weeks. Today, I have with me Tom McMeekin. Tom, why don't you intro introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi Shane, great to be here and joining the episode with you today in the hot seat, replacing some of the big names like Dr. Pete and team. Um, so I'm a solutions architect here at AWS based in Melbourne for just over two years. And like, you, like yourself, Shane, I uh, work closely with customers in helping them architect their applications and their workloads and making sure that they operate op optimally on the AWS platform. With reInvent going on, we're going to skip the news today and jump right in with a short, sharp 30-minute episode that will cover some operational updates and will target those operating at the coalface and architecting solutions. And when I say coalface, I mean those who are responsible for keeping the lights on, who are going to be woken up you know, by that page at night. So there's nothing worse than being woken up by a pager, don't you think, Tom? Yes, there is nothing worse. <laughs> And look, I'd go as far to say that, you know, a pager can potentially be worse than maybe even a newborn baby when your options on how to remediate these root causes are limited. So, Tom, when I first dipped my toe into the world of AWS Cloud, I was amazed at how simple it was to create a VPC. Yeah, it was, it's amazing how simple it was back then, Shane, but just looking at some of the updates you've got here, uh, it's amazing how far we've come. Absolutely. You know, and... You know, going back, doing this in an on-premise manner was a magnitude more complicated. You know, and I'm only talking here in the network space. Obviously, you know, you still will need to create like a default gateway for your subnets, leverage DNS to make these functional. And one of the immediate benefits that AWS VPC provides is that magic .to address, where any EC2 instance or a Lambda ENI placed in this subnet will be able to leverage .to for domain name service queries, so DNS. So the DOP2 address, so that's one of the reserved addresses that we've um, reserved in VPC subnets yeah, for that's, a while. Yeah, that's right, Tom. So we have five special IP addresses that are reserved for internal use. So this DOP2 address resolves both public and private domains without any input from us. But when I say private, we're talking about the DNS servers listed in the scope of the VPC, which is assigned via DHCP. But, you know, as an architect working with customers today, you and I... We spend lots of time creating solutions around what I would call Route 53's Achilles heel, which is its inability to seamlessly perform a hybrid DNS resolution. Yeah, that's right. I mean, DNS is such a critical service to, uh, that underpins uh, almost everything that customers do on the platform. Um, you know, we certainly encourage customers to design applications from a namespace standpoint, not hard-coding IP addresses, for example. Um, so, yeah. You mean I can't use the host file? <laughs> no, no host files are on Lambda functions. So look, a lot of customers live in a hybrid world and whilst AWS is a great place for hybrid workloads, it can pose challenges where DNS resolution is required for on-premises systems within AWS and vice versa. And you know, this can pose some challenges and I've seen some really 
novel and interesting solutions being architected to overcome this? You know, are you adding both internal and AWS resources into Route 53, using Route 53 as a source of truth? Or maybe are you adding both AWS and internal resources into your local Active Directory or Bind DNS? Multiple sources of truth, whatever solution you architect, you know, it gets messy and is often far away from the keep it simple, stupid metro. Yeah, and it just wastes sometimes um, unneeded uh, necessary effort for customers to, to focus on and really removing them from architecting the application outcomes or the outcomes that they're looking to deliver from that system or service that they're delivering. Exactly, Tom. So today, three great announcements just prior to reInvent. And even though I get excited about DNS, I think you know removing my love affair with UDP 53, these will have tangible impacts to the way customers architect solutions on AWS Cloud. So Shane, DNS has got to be some of the core focus around some of the announcements that we're talking about here. What do we have available for customers that we've announced prior to reInvent? All right, Tom. So firstly, we have the Amazon Route 53 conditional forwarder. So for those who've been around DNS for years and years and years, this acts, funnily enough, as a traditional forwarder. So it means you can simplify your DNS and keep Route 53 as your source of, source of truth and leverage Route 53 resolver forwarding rules for your internal domains. You know, as an example, in all the free time I have and this laid back job, I started the business, shaneswidgets.com. Awesome. What, is, what do you sell, Shane? I sell widgets, Tom. Amazing widgets. Nice. And I look, I have a non-local internet resolvable domain, shanewidgets.local which lives on some servers in my distribution center today. For all of my AWS resources, I'm using a third level or subdomain, aws.shanewidgets.local. So Tom, how do you get resources to play nicely with each other? So Shane, I can see the excitement on your face here. Please let us know what's, what's coming. Aha, all right. For our listeners who are familiar with Route 53, I can also sense your rejoice with this announcement. Route 53 now offers conditional forwarders. And I'm really excited about this. You know, I think, Tom, Amazon's probably going to save a heap of money just in this announcement by reducing the number of whiteboard markers that architects like you and I need on a daily basis when describing patterns that solve these problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about the stages of adoption that customers go through, we're, we're migrating to cloud or adoption of our services. As I mentioned earlier, one of those core conversations is the networking and DNS comes as part of that and spending that time in architecting, uh, forwarding um, DNS requests, um, always as, as a bit of focus. So this is a great announcement for our customers, Shane. This is a good example, I think, of how we've listened to our customers and removing continuously that heavy lifting that we're seeing customers do and to take that upon ourselves to deliver uh, a service and capabilities to our customers to be able to focus on other things. Exactly, Tom. And this means that customers can create rules leveraging Route 53 that forward DNS requests outside of their VPC to external DNS servers. So in the example, shanewidgets.local, I could create a rule in Route 53 to say for DNS queries received for shaneswidgets.local to 10.0.01, assuming that 10.0.01 is my on-premises DNS server. And it gets better. So you can specify additional servers just in case your primary server is offline. And we also provide some fine-grained control by allowing you to specify the VPCs and subnets that this rule will apply to, because there may be scenarios where you don't want those on-premises systems to be resolvable within your AWS environment. In order to do this, you need an endpoint, which is a perfect segue through to inbound and outbound endpoints for Route 53. 
If we get back to our conditional rules example, it would require an outbound endpoint as this will act as the interface to which queries from your VPC originate from when contacting your on-premises server. Conversely, you require an inbound endpoint if you're allowing your on-premises DNS servers to forward requests into Route 53. Think of an endpoint like an ENI that is used by services from Lambda through to private link and so on. These endpoints can be simplex or duplex. You can enable endpoints for inbound requests, outbound requests, or for both. When creating endpoints, you're able to specify what VPC and AZs these will reside in, and it goes without saying that we recommend that you place your endpoints in different availability zones and that you configure your off-cloud systems to use multiple Route 53 endpoints. So that would be multiple forwarder DNS servers. Awesome to hear, Shane. So, Tom, in case our listeners didn't pick up on my Australian sarcasm, I really, I don't have a company and I don't have a distribution center. What? I've just been here bagging up and putting a number of widgets in my shopping cart, ready to hit place the order and there's nothing on the other side, Shane. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Tom, but what I do have is a VPN at my house to connect into my VPC and on the weekend I gave us a go to set up. And honestly, it couldn't be any easier. You know, I didn't even have to use the AWS documentation you know, assuming you've got a basic understanding of DNS, which I hope our listeners have and are familiar with, you could simply just follow the wizard to set this up. So in effect, other than setting up the endpoints and ensuring UDP 53 is open, because remember DNS runs over this port and protocol, all you need to do is create some conditional forwarders in both Route 53 and your on-premise environment. If you do need some help, the Route 53 documentation has a walkthrough for getting started with the Route 53 resolver, forwarding inbound DNS queries to your VPC, forwarding outbound DNS queries to your network, managing endpoints and managing rules. So Tom, the changes here are designed to round out the capabilities around Route 53 for hybrid workloads. But in this modern world, which technology is shrinking day by day, it's often about going global. So Shane, if you do decide to launch shanewidgets.com, and I think there's a big market there that you should really tap into, it's going to be really easy for you to go global in minutes. And that's one of the advantages of the AWS platform in enabling customers to take their workload that may be residing in, say, Sydney region um, here in Australia, for example, enabling them to go global um, with a few click of the buttons. Um, now, back in uh, reInvent 2017, we uh, launched the capability to do uh, inter-region VPC peering. Uh, now, off the back of some of your DNS announcements that you've been referring to just there, Shane, um, we're also extending the inter-region VPC peering to have DNS resolution support. So on the operational plus side, this feature allows VPC resources running in different AWS regions such as EC2 instances, RDS databases, and even Lambda functions to communicate with each other using private IP addressing without requiring any gateways, VPN connections, or separate network appliances running on EC2. So Tom, from a security point of view, how does this work and does traffic flow over the public internet? Yeah, that's a great question, Sane. So at AWS, cloud security is the highest priority here. Uh, and for the security conscious people listening out there, they'd be happy to hear that the inter-region VPC uh, traffic um, is encrypted across the various different regions that they peer to. And there's also no single point of failure and no bandwidth bottlenecks. So Tom, how do we go about enabling inter-region VPC peering? As I really want to simplify my architecture before I go global. Sure, Shane. So when you do decide to go global after you've launched shaneswidgets.com, you can easily do this through either the AWS console or through a more programmatic way, leveraging the CLI or other um, APIs, for example. 
So let's let's have a look at the console first. So as you would normally, you'd log on to the console and navigate to the VPC service to, to kick off the peering process as you normally would for those familiar to it. Now, if the peered VPC is in the same AWS account, you can choose the option to enable DNS resolution for queries for, from that local VPC. Now, this ensures that queries from that local VPC resolve to the private IP addresses in that peered VPC. Now, this option is not available if the peered VPC is in a different AWS account uh, or in a different region. So that's really important to, to be across that, Shane, because there's a little bit of a caveat there. Now, if that peer VPC is in a different AWS account or in a different region, that owner of that peered VPC must sign into the VPC console as well and perform um, some uh, similar steps. Now, if we also take a look at um, how you can go about enabling this uh, capabilities uh, in a more programmatic manner, there's a couple of different um, tools available within, within our toolkit that we make available to customers. You can leverage the AWS CLI, so our trusted AWS CLI, and be able to call and modify VPC peering connection through those options there. But you can also leverage PowerShell, um, commandlets, or make a direct call to the uh, Amazon EC2 API. Nice one, Tom. And for those using the AWS CLI or AWS PowerShell approach, obviously ensure you have the latest version of the commandlet and the CLI respectively so that these new features will be available. Moving past DNS onto what is the core of most organizations, EC2. And a bit of a history lesson here. In 2006, we launched EC2. In 2009, ELBs and auto-scaling as well as CloudWatch metrics came to the fray. And earlier this year, we launched EC2 Fleet which for customers was a bit of a game changer as it allowed you to create fleets that are built from a combination of EC2 on demand, reserved and spot instances that span multiple EC2 instance types. And assuming you had the right workload type, which was typically a scale out application in nature, not tied to a specific compute parameters, it worked really well. And when I say right workloads, we're talking about workloads such as media encoding, data processing, and those workloads where EC2 fleet really allows you to maximize the performance to cost to time ratio. So that was one workload, but what about more common workloads? So let's talk about auto-scaling because when I mention cloud, the first thing that comes to most IT pros mind is elasticity. So Tom, the change here is that customers can now create auto-scaling groups that grow and shrink in response to changing conditions just like auto-scaling has done in the past, but now being able to make use of the most economical combination of EC2 instance types and pricing models. You have full control of the instance types that will be used to build your group, along with the ability to control the mix of on-demand and spot instances. You can also update your existing auto-scaling groups to take advantage of this new feature. So what we're talking here is the ability to create auto-scaling groups with a combination of on-demand and spot instances. So previously, when you would go to create an auto-scaling group, you would typically go and create a launch configuration. Well now, when you go into the console and click create auto-scaling group under EC2, there's a new option. That new option is called create launch template, and it's the launch template that gives you the option of launching one type of instance or a combination of instances, and the kicker here is multiple purchase options. Yeah, Shane, I love it how the uh, the granular control that the launch templates provide, you know, being able to select various different options within that configuration or that uh, launch template is pretty impressive for what we've got in there. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. It means that customers can seek the lowest overall cost while meeting the other requirements set by your configuration. 
So you can modify the configuration as new instance types becomes available, allowing you to create a group that evolves in step with EC2. So let's quickly talk about how we can leverage ASGs with multiple purchase options. So in the console, you can navigate through auto scaling groups under EC2 and create launch template. When you do this, ensure that you check the combined purchase options and instances radio button, which will then cause the UI to expand and allow you to choose a compute strategy, allowing you to create an allocation. So as an example, Tom, you may want to prioritize spot over on demand, or you may want to prioritize the lowest cost instance types over other instances. Or maybe you might want to try and strike a cost ratio, maybe 30% on demand, 70% spot, or even a minimum number of instances that must be fulfilled by on demand and the rest can be spot. You know, it's really like an evolved launch configuration with min, max and desired settings, but now there are many, many more levers to, to pull. Okay, so how do you do this? On the CLI front, you can use the create auto scaling group command within the AWS CLI. Via PowerShell, you can use the new hyphen AS auto scaling group commandlet from within Windows PowerShell. And I'd expect this pattern, Tom, to almost become the new normal of auto-scaling, and it's available in all AWS regions. So sticking with auto-scaling, Tom, I believe we have another announcement. So today, um, I'm excited to talk about also the new predictive scaling capabilities uh, that's also available in the auto-scaling um, component of EC2. Um, and the predictive auto-scaling uses the data collected from your actual EC2 usage um, and further complemented by billions of data points that we've drawn on from our own observations uh, using a well-trained machine learning model to predict the traffic that's uh, expected on your EC2 instances. Now, some caveats around this. The model needs at least one days of historical data to make uh, start making predictions, uh, and then it's constantly re-evaluated every 24 hours to create a forecast for the next 48 hours. You can also configure some warm-up times for your EC2 instances and also get, some, get to see some of the actual, but also the predicted usage uh, that the auto-scaling group is, is predicting. And you can see this is represented in the console through some uh, interesting visualizations. The prediction process produces a scaling plan that can drive one or more auto-scaling groups um, backing your auto-scaled EC2 instances. Now, the most awesome thing about this, Shane, this comes completely free of charge for our customers. So zero cost for our customers to start to leverage the power of machine learning for their auto-scaling of their EC2 instances. Nice. And, you know, it probably may even reduce customers' AWS charges. Absolutely, which is awesome to see. Uh, for our customers. Uh, so predictive scaling is also available now for our customers out of US East uh, North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, Europe Ireland, and uh, Singapore in Asia Pacific with more regions to come. Nice one. All right. We've spoken about some great new features around auto scaling and DNS, which are great from an operational point of view. But as customers become more mature in AWS Cloud, they in almost all cases end up leveraging AWS CloudFormation, which is our declarative syntax language that allows customers to describe and provision all their infrastructure resources in their environment. CloudFormation allows you to create a simple text file, so JSON and YAML based, and that text file contains all the resources needed for your application across all regions and accounts. So in a lot of organizations, these files, these CloudFormation templates, serve as the single source of truth for your cloud environment. So whilst it should be the source of truth in an ideal world, we all know we don't live in an ideal world and the realities of supporting a production environment is often people you know, log into a server via RDP and SSH and edit that configuration file or make that knuckle change. 
Yeah, that's right, Shane. I like to identify these servers as snowflaked environments. Snowflaked. So, Tom, it's summer here. You may want to elaborate. What is a snowflake for our listeners? So a snowflake in my eyes is uh, a system that's been deployed from a potentially an automated fashion. Um, but people have retrospectively logged onto this and made subtle changes within that environment, essentially creating a unique uh, environment in every single way. You know, and ultimately, this, this server or system has deviated from what was originally automatically deployed via a deployment pipeline. And it's not something that can be trusted anymore in the sense of comparing it back to that original and known state. Mm. So, Tom, I believe we have an exciting new feature that can help our customers solve this problem. Exactly. And that's where this new feature release is going to help a lot of our customers. AWS CloudFormation now supports drift detection, which allows you to detect if configuration changes were made to your stack resources outside of CloudFormation via the AWS Management Console, CLI, or even our SDKs. Drift being the difference between the expected configuration values of the stack resources defined in the CloudFormation templates and the actual configuration values of the resources in the corresponding CloudFormation stacks. You know, this allows you to better manage your CloudFormation stacks and ensure consistency in your resource configurations. So Tom, this feature to me, you know, it's really about increasing trust, you know, ensuring that your environments are consistent so you can trust them. Yeah, that's right, Shane. So today, Drift Detection feature supports a core set of services that are available on the AWS platform. We launched with support for API Gateway, Autoscaling, CloudTrail, CloudWatch Events, CloudWatch Logs, DynamoDB, Amazon EC2, Elastic Load Balancing, IAM, AWS IoT, Lambda, Amazon RDS, Route 53, Amazon S3, Amazon SNS, Amazon SQS, and a few more. Wow, that's a fair few services there. Yeah, so there's a good coverage there um, initially to enable customers to, de to, uh, to get the benefits of that drift de detection. You know, you can perform drift detection on stacks that are in the create complete, update complete, update rollback complete, update rollback failed states. The drift detection does not apply to other stacks that are nested within your one that you check. You can do these checks yourself instead. All right, so you can't perform drift detection on nested stacks within CloudFormation. So in order to run drift detection, uh, within CloudFormation, select stack and check detect drift. Now this will usually take a few minutes and is largely dependent on the number of resources within your stack. Now, if there is a drift uh, detected, it will show just like some feedback that you will see within your IDE. You'll get, be get, given a, a current state or a baseline and comparing that to, um, to what should be expected um, from the initial deployment. Now drift detection will provide you with the resources that have been added, removed, but also AWS configuration changes that might have also deviated. You know, a great example of this is a security group uh, rule change that's um, been made and modified manually after it's been initially deployed through CloudFormation. Now Shane, given that we practice and preach role-based access control, in order to successfully perform drift detection on a stack, a user must have the following permissions. They must have re-permissions for each resource that supports drift detection, including in the stack. You know, for example, if the stack includes AWS EC2 instance resource, you must have EC2 describe instance permissions to perform drift detection on that stack. You must also have CloudFormation detect stack drift and also CloudFormation detect staffed resource drift. I'll say that one last time. CloudFormation detect stack 
resource drift. So these are the IAM permissions that must be part of that role-based access control that you have to find for the user who's performing that, uh, that drift detection. So this is a really great feature, Tom, to ensure that customers can validate what's deployed in their environment corresponds to what is actually in their source control platform. And look, with that, we are out of time today. Hopefully, what we discussed today can be used to optimize and tune your environment. To recap what we spoke about, Route 53 resolvers for inbound and outbound traffic flows with conditional forwarding to help reduce the complexity of hybrid environments, as well as the support for name resolution over inter-region VPC peering. Auto scaling groups now allow you to mix and match spot and on-demand resources, giving customers more choice in regards to pricing options. We touched on predictive scaling for auto scaling groups. And lastly, we introduced the ability to detect drift with CloudFormation. Thanks, Tom, for your time today. It really has been a blast. And as always, we love to hear your feedback. So please do drop us an email at awstechchat at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.